Good evening. Welcome to VLSE for tonight's event. My name is Barbara Fasolo. I'm Associate Professor of Behavioral Science here at the LSE, at the Department of Management, and I serve as the head of the Behavioral Lab at the LSE. I'm really thrilled uh, to welcome to the LSE longtime friend Simona Botti. Simona is Professor of Marketing at the London Business School, where she chairs the marketing subject area. And as such, she has the freedom and responsibility of making many choices every day. And this connection between freedom of choice and responsibility is really the focus of her research and of tonight's talk. She'll uh, share with us some insights, some a bit counterintuitive, about um, feeling free to choose. And I hope that we'll feel more confident living tonight about the choices that we make, perhaps even the bad ones that we really don't want people to, to know about. They might be handy this weekend, it's Black Friday, <laughs> uh, but they might be also handy in tougher situations when we have perhaps to support others with difficult choices about, say, medical treatments. For this work, Simona has, um, has been awarded several um, awards, like the uh, Robert Ferber Awards and the Best Article Award. Now, I've tried to get in touch with some co-authors of um, her research to discover some fun fact that you can't find just Googling her or reading her papers. But not much came out. I don't know exactly why. One, uh, one wrote, Simone is a pleasure to work with, but probably the main things that I associate her with are hard work, commitment, persistence, steely determinism, all masked in an aura of fun. She is a tough, comma, tough cookie. So obviously I can, I can do better than that because <laughs> Simone and I go back a few, a few years. We were at undergrad together, um, innocent undergrad years. So I will not talk about that. Bit, yeah. But we will talk about instead some memories um, from even last week. She came visit us um, at LSE because as you see from tonight's talk, she, um, she conducts lots of lab experiments, pretty much all of her research is lab-based. So we invited her to have a, um, have a look at our newly refurbished lab. And that tour revealed something really interesting, at least two facts about Simona. First, she really, really loves fireplaces. <laughs> and she knows a lot about them. Uh, she really even had to choose between fireplaces, as you maybe will tell us later. But anyway, we figured that out because as she came through the lab, uh, if you come and see it, you'll now see that there's brand new equipment. There's virtual reality glasses, skin conductance response sensors, and all of that. But no, what Simona was really drawn to was the grade two listed fireplace, which now has basically become the center of animated research discussions. So there she is with Enrico Diecidu and myself. So thanks, uh, Simona. From now on, that's where we'll have our research talks. The second thing you want to know about Simone is that she is really, really keen um, in exercising. No matter how much she researches, travels, does admin, teaching, she always finds time to exercise. And when we walked from here to the lab, it's really a short walk, you could really see the result of that 
um, exercising regime. So here she is hopping, really with purpose and gusto, on top of a hopscotch game, which you might find out on campus. Um, you can find it just wandering around or just ask us afterwards. We'll have a reception. Um, but you can see, you can try to match her speed. She was very fast. So speaking of reception, uh, a few final important announcements. Uh, Simona Stock will go for about 40 minutes. Then uh, we'll have a conversation about uh, research and lab, and then we'll take questions from, from you all. At 8 p.m., uh, we're going to not really end. I'll invite you to just join us outside for a reception, which will be till 9. The event is recorded, uh, so hopefully it will be available as a podcast uh, if there's no technical glitch. But that means that let's please uh, put the phones on silent. Mine is. Um, for those who Twitter, uh, the hashtag is LSE Choices. And you'll also have found in front of you a feedback card, which is a new thing. So please, before you leave tonight, just leave us your feedback. We want to learn from it. So now, please join me in welcoming here to deliver the lecture on how freedom of choice influences well-being, Simona Botti. All right. Um Clicker works? Yes. Okay, so I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for coming. Thank you for um, inviting me, Barbara, and uh, Lars, and John, and uh, Claire, and, and, and everybody else here at LSE. It's always an honor. This is a um, great place. I come from London Business School, which is only a business school. This is like a more intellectual place, if you, if you can talk about it. So I'm going to be talking about something that I've been thinking about a lot. I've been thinking about like 20 years. I know I look very young, but uh, I'm not. <laughs> so I've been thinking about this for too long, probably. Uh, and it's this relationship between freedom of choice and well-being, individual and societal well-being. And by freedom of choice here, I mean a situation or circumstances in which individuals make self-determined choices rather than uh, externally determined choices. So they make their own choices rather than having uh, other people, um, whatever, fate, circumstances determining this, this choice. So how does this act of making uh, self-choice influence your own well-being and maybe also the societal well-being? Uh, all my research, pretty much all my research, have done lab experiments. So given that, as Barbara said, uh, the LSE has this new revamped, beautiful, with fireplaces, uh, no, one fireplace uh, lab, I also will talk a, a bit about the pros and cons of using this research method. Some of you may be familiar with it, some of you not. Uh, it's not a perfect method. It's pretty good in doing certain things and not very good at doing other things. And so we're going to talk about the limits and advantages of, of doing experiments. So let's see how it goes, okay? If I get long, I'm going to cut some, some slides. So why I'm interested in the relationship between freedom of choice and well-being? Because I see around myself uh, a lot of situations in which choices that in the past were made for us by other people government, experts, marketers, doctors, that they are now given to us as individuals to make. So in the past it was made by somebody else, and now we are supposed to make these choices. And this happens in a lot of domains. So let me give you some examples. I have a fixation with shoes. I don't know if you like this one, they're my favorite, but I really like shoes, okay? In the past, I could pick between shoes, products, bundles of attributes. 
Nowadays, because of technological advancement, you can pick at the level of the single attribute, right? You can customize not only the shoes, you can customize pretty much everything. So you can decide whether you want a ribbon or not, or what color you want to this ribbon. So it's a level of choice that you couldn't have in the past because it was not the technology, and now you do have it. Another domain, for example, is utility, or markets in which you have the regulamentation. And this is my favorite study here is when I, I'm Italian, as you may have noticed uh, on this slight accent that I have. Barbara is Italian too, but her accent is much better than mine. Um, but when I moved from Italy to the United States to, to study, to, to do my PhD, one of the first pieces of mail that I got in my mailbox was something similar to this, something that helps me to uh, choose my gas supplier. Now in Italy, nobody has ever asked me to make such a choice, you know, you, you open the gas, sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't happen, but you don't ask like, oh, it's a choice, or who's giving me the gas, or, you know, it's, it's happening, right? All of a sudden, it was a matter of choice. All of a sudden, I was supposed to make a choice that I was not equipped to, and it was agonizing, and I spent a lot of time, and I'm pretty sure that I could have done anything else more fun than pick the gas supplier, but here I am, I had to do it. Right? And this happens now, happens in all other markets, even here, in which then there is this deregulamentation of markets. Now, all of a sudden, things that were not a matter of choice become a matter of choice. They are competitors, they are different offers. Think about um, health decision making. When I moved from the United States to the UK, it was around um, 2007, there was all this talking about changes in the NHS. And it seemed that all the solutions of the problems of the NHS was in giving choice to the patients. So something in the past was decided by the doctors or by, again, the government, or I'm not sure how the NHS organized. Now it's a matter of choice for the patient, what doctor, what treatment, what hospital. And finally, in education, in my school, Orlando Business School, but I know that this is a tendency a little bit all over uh, institutions, um, there is a tendency also to say like, what well, the students should kind of choose their curricula. Right, so in the past, you would have like a certain number of core courses everybody had to take, and a certain number of elective courses that you know you can choose. And now the electives are becoming bigger and bigger, and the core becoming smaller and smaller. So again, the the, the, the students can uh, select um, more than in the past. In the past, it was the the professor, the schools, the academia deciding, and now it's them. So as you see, and I'm sure you can think about a lot of uh, other examples of because of technology, because of the regulation, because of well, decisions, you push the choice from kind of the supply to the demand side. Why? There are a lot of reasons why this happens, but if everybody does it, you know, you must think that they're not all stupid, right? So there must be some benefits in doing so, and some benefits also to the final person, the consumer, the final individual. So. I think the, the underlying assumption is that we are better off as individuals when we make our own choices rather than when these choices are dictated by somebody else. And of course there is a lot of truth in this, in this saying. I mean, freedom of choice is, is fundamental for, 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 for autonomy, like the, the people kind of fighting for the freedom of choice. So it's a great thing. But on the other end, if I think about myself, I'm a terrible chooser. I hate choosing. I agonize over choices, that I'm a maximizer, I, have, I always have to make the best choice. So the more options are there, the more agonizing this is, because how do I know that I'm making the best choice? I regret my choice, I think about it, and it's, it's complicated. And for me, sometimes it's so relieving if somebody actually makes a choice for me and I just enjoy it. So I started thinking as a PhD student, like, am I a weirdo? Am I the only person who doesn't see all these benefits in this freedom of choice? 
or there are some underlying context or type of people or type of situations in which this freedom of choice, in fact, does not increase satisfaction okay, or well-being. So I focus on the context more than on the personal uh, characteristics. And uh, I decided to study this relationship between freedom of choice and well-being using the only method that I know, uh, pretty much the only method I've been training on, which is experiments. Right? I'm going to talk a little bit about experiments. But if we want to use experiments to study this question, the first thing that you have to do is that you have to narrow down your question. Experiments are not very good at you know, providing answers that are so big. What is the relationship between well-being uh, and freedom of choice and well-being? You have to really narrow down to a very specific hypothesis that involves a few variables. So if you have like big ideas, you cannot use experiment to answer these big ideas at once. You have to kind of narrow it down in little pieces, very specific pieces with very few variables involved. And maybe over time, if you run a lot of these experiments, you can put it all together and have a gigantic theory. But you have to be very, you know, in one sense, maybe simplistic. I prefer saying elegant. And sometimes it's very difficult to narrow down a big research question to a very simple relationship between variables. That's actually the, the elegance and the beauty of experiments. And the other thing is that not only you have to have specific simple hypotheses, but you have to have hypotheses in which there is a causal relationship. So experiments are very good to understand causality. Because you say, like, if I get an effect, it is because I manipulate an independent variable, a specific factor. And I control for everything else, and so I know that that effect is due to that variable, that that variable is the cause of that effect. So if you're interested in this causality, and if you're willing to narrow down research question to something that is you know, small, then experiments are great. If not, then you shouldn't use experiments. So what is my simple uh, hypothesis here? It took me like, you know, we can, we can talk about it for a week, but I ended up with this hypothesis that freedom of choice makes people better off when the choice is among all desirable or neutral options. However, freedom of choice makes people worse off when the choice is among all undesirable options. Okay? So that's my specific hypothesis. There are certain contexts in which freedom of choice not necessarily makes people better off. This context is when the choice is among all undesirable options. How did I test it? With a study. Okay? This is a lab at Chicago. Now, the LSE lab is much better. This is a little bit dated, I have to say. Uh, these are participants. A participant, he comes to the lab, and pretty much I'm telling them, this participant, that he's going to taste a yogurt, a new flavor of yogurt. And this new flavor of yogurt is made with a plain yogurt and a spice. Okay? Now, half of the participants are told that they can freely select one of the spices, the spices that they're going to taste. Now, these are the choosers. These are the ones that are self-determining whatever is going to happen to them. The other half are told that this, this, the yogurt flavor that they're going to taste is going to be selected at random for them by the experimenter. And so the experimenter picks up a piece of paper and says, like, you're going to taste this specific flavor. So those are the known choosers in which the choice is externally determined, in this case, at random by a stranger. Right, so this way, I give some people freedom of choice and some people no. Okay? Then remember that the other piece of my hypothesis is that in the context of desirable options, 
freedom of choice should make people worse off, in the context of, sorry, but better off, in the, concept, in the context of undesirable options, freedom of choice should make people worse off. So I have to figure out a context in which a choice is desirable, a context which is not desirable. And this is how I did it in the lab. In the desirable condition, all these spices were pretty good, pre-tested for being good, mint, cocoa, cinnamon, and brown sugar. In the undesirable condition, all the spices were pre-tested for being pretty disgusting. Okay? And they are disgusting, believe me. I tasted all of them. <laughs> the most disgusting is tarragon. Uh, the problem with chili powder is that actually Indian loves chili powder. And so I didn't, you know, I didn't forecast that. I didn't realize it. Uh, you know, you should have a more cultural, uh, uh, you know, alertness. And so there were all these Indian participants coming out of the lab and saying, mm, that was great. I'm like, no, you know, <laughs> I'm supposed to hate it. <laughs> anyway, so uh, they were randomized, so hopefully it didn't, didn't really hurt me that much. So again, if you are a participant in this experiment, you can end up in one of these four groups. A chooser among good things, a non-chooser among good things, a chooser among bad things, a non-chooser among bad things. And then everybody at the end, they taste whatever yogurt they end up uh, choosing or, or being assigned to, and they're asked to report how much they liked the yogurt that they ate on a scale from one to nine. <coughs> Take the averages, and I compare the averages across these four groups, okay? So what do I find? In the tasty conditions, when the options were all good, right, this is what you would expect, or you would think, given where the market is going. The choosers like it more than the non-choosers. The choosers is the blue bar, the average of the choosers, and the average of how much the choosers say they like the yogurt that they tasted. They like, on average, more than the non-choosers, the ones who are assigned a yogurt. However, in the disgusting condition, the effect flips. Right? So the choosers like it less than the non-choosers. So this is the surprising bit, because I always say, like, this thing, this contrast here gave me my PhD, gave me a job, and I'm still talking about it after 20 years, you know? So good investment. But um, this is surprising because, you know, from a rational perspective, you would say, you know your preferences, right? So you know your preferences among good things and bad things. You know what is the thing that you like the most and also the thing that you dislike the least. So if you are at the freedom of choice, you would pick here what you like most and here what you dislike the least. If you are assigned, you have one out of four probabilities of getting that one thing that you would pick by yourself. So the pattern should be the same. Here, the blue bar should be taller than the gray bar in both cases from a rational perspective, but it's not the case. From a psychological perspective, actually, psychologists would agree with economists, not because psychologists think that we know our preferences. Psychologists are like, yeah, we have no idea, right? But because psychologists think that the mere act of choosing makes us believe that we made the right choice. So we have a series of psychological mechanisms that make us think, I'm not stupid, I'm not a bad chooser, of course this is the best thing. So you kind of, whatever you choose, you kind of convince yourself that you made the best choice. So even psychologists would have predicted the blue bar to be taller than the gray bar. And this is why there is all this push to give choices to, um, you know, to people, right? Because like, people know what they want. Even if they do not know, they're going to convince themselves that they know. Now, I also measured it behaviorally. So I went to measure how much yogurt, they, in fact, they, they ate. And the pattern is the same, right? It's kind of slightly different because that contrast there is not significant. 
But this one, which is the one that was interested, the surprising one, is significant. All right, so uh, I do this, like great, you know, I get my PhD, kind of, <laughs> I'm looking for a job. And the people when I was on the job market, and I think you're thinking the same thing, they kept asking, who cares? Right, like who cares? Who cares about butt yogurts? You know, when do you find butt yogurt? Do they even exist? If they're bad, then nobody buys them, probably they're not on the market. Right? So why, why you should be, oh, Irene, ciao. <laughs> My friend Irene is there. Um, why, why would you do that? Right? So this is the, the topic of relevance. How important is this research? Is it you with your you know, fixation about choice and your being a bad chooser that you're interested in and nobody else cares? Is it like one of these academic things in which you, know, you your mom, and your friends, Irene and Barbara care and nobody else cares? Right? And the second related question is, does it happen in real life? Again, when is it that you have to make a choice between undesirable yogurt, right? So the, quest, the answer to this is that I don't care about yogurt either. I care about the relationship with these, these two variables, freedom of choice and well-being and this balance. I happen to use yogurt because, you know, because I don't have that much money, so I have to pick something that is cheap. Right? I cannot kill people in the lab, so something that is, you know, ethical, right? That they cannot, I cannot have people like really feeling bad or something, so it has to be bad, but not too bad. Uh, so you have to make, you know, how do you say, you know, whatever, you, you have to find something that tests your hypothesis in a way that is feasible. That's why yogurt is feasible. Other things can be feasible. I picked yogurt, I could have picked something else. But... I'm not interested in the yogurt per se. I'm interested in testing a theory in a control environment, which is the lab, to see whether there is a causal relationship between the variable that I'm interested in. And I manipulate this in a way that, you know, given my money, given the, the resources that I have, given the possibility that I have. Still, the question remains. Because, you know, if you think about, like, it never exists, then who cares? then, you know, this research is something that satisfies me, but it's not something that, um, that can be, you know, relevant for the rest of the world. So I started asking myself, when is it really, in real life, that people have choice among all undesirable options? And the one thing that came to my mind is medical decision-making. So in medical decision-making, do you want to have this treatment? Do you want to have a surgery? Do you want to have this terrible medicine? Well, you don't want to have any of these things, right? But you have to pick one, and again, more and more, it's you as a patient that have to make this choice. So while I was thinking about this, in fact, I was reading on the New York Times an article that says this, said that the, kind of the medical decision-making has changed over the year from a system that was called paternalistic system, in which the doctors would choose on behalf of the patients in the best interest of the patient, this is what they swear on, to a system in which, you know, the patients make the, the, the choice, the autonomous system, it's called autonomous system. The patients know what kind of life he or she wants to live. The patients know what kind of, how much pain or how much risk. And this is something that the doctors doesn't know. These are the preferences of the patient, right? And this is, again, all good. But what this article was saying is that this is a new responsibility done on patients, some embracing with a sense of pride and furious determination, but many find the job of being a modern patient with this love through medical uncertainty to be lonely, frightening, and overwhelming. There is a cost in making this choice, 
is, a, is as an emotional cause, an affective cause, that may be superior to the benefits. Maybe, right? So I got lucky here because I met, this is a very sad story, I met a, a sociologist, and this sociologist had interviews, uh, she had interviewed, for, for other reasons, she was more interested in cultural differences, but she had interviews um, among other people, uh, parents, 10 couple of parents in the United States and 10 parents of, 10, 10 uh, pair of couples in, uh, 10 pair of parents in France, who all went through the same tragic experience. They all had babies who were very sick. They were put in the neonatal intensive care unit with life-sustaining treatment. So this feeding tube and, and breathing tubes. And then at a certain point, the decision had to be made to either continue life-sustaining treatment or interrupt it. And the doctors would say that if you interrupt life-sustaining treatment, the baby very likely is going to die. If you continue, the baby very likely, there is a 60-40 kind of, 60% probability of the baby surviving with severe neurological impairments, meaning the baby will never be autonomous, and 40% probability of dying. Okay? So all the parents went to the situation that a choice had to be made. The choice was made to, um, to discontinue the life support, and the baby died. Okay? Critically, in France, the clinic that this, the sociologist was working with was mainly working on the uh, paternalistic system. So the choice was mainly made by the doctors. It's never, you know, it's never IOB, but mainly made by the doctors. While in the United States, the clinic was working more on the autonomous system, and the choice was made mainly by the parents. And what seemed to emerge from this interview with the, with the parents, and these are subjective Interpretations. These are qualitative data. These are only like 10 pair of, you know, 20 pair of parents in, in total. The Americans seem to say, you know, I should have done something else. I still kick myself. What if I did something else? So they seem to have like problems in coping with this tragic event. While the French, they seem to be more accepting. And they say like, well, nobody could have done anything. I've done the best. You know, there's nothing else to do. This is the best choice we could have made. So here the choosers, among all undesirable things, these two options are both undesirable, they seem to be worse off emotionally, worse off in terms of coping with what happened to them than the non-choosers. Okay? So it's yogurt right, in, a, in a situation that is more realistic, uh, and in this case, using kind of multi-methods. These are not experiments. These are qualitative data that give you an insight into such a big problem that is difficult to um, study only in the lab. Right? You can study yogurts, you cannot study this kind of choices, thankfully. Right? You cannot have all these people coming to the lab and having these terrible experiences. However, I wanted to support it with some more objective uh, data. And so what I did in the lab, I had like, it's called a scenario-based study. So undergraduates, people that, you know, most of them didn't even have kids, they would come to the lab, I would tell them the story. I mean, they would read a scenario that tells the same story that I just told you. And then half of them, they were told, imagine you're a, the parent. Which would you choose? Would you choose to continue the treatment or to interrupt the treatment? And the other half, they say, like, the doctors decide to uh, interrupt the treatment. The majority of the choosers also decide to interrupt the treatment. This is what the doctors would recommend. It seems the most rational choice to do. Okay, so it's the best choice to do, if you want. Uh, but in one case, it was decided by 
this undergrad and the other one was assigned to them. And after that, I would ask, how do you feel? How do you think you would feel after making this choice? So the negative emotion in this case was our dependent variable. And here we replicated yogurt. So those in the choice condition reported that they would feel worse than those in the no choice condition. Now in this study, I also tried to test a little bit the process. So why this is happening? Why there are situations when the choices are all undecidable, uh, the choosers feel worse than the non-chooser? And the hypothesis that I had is that choice, again, comes with a lot of benefits, but comes with a lot of costs. And I focus on one specific cost, which is responsibility. So if something good happens, not only is good, you made it happen, so it becomes even better. But if something bad happens, it's not only bad, you brought it to yourself, it becomes even worse. So choice kind of enhances almost the effective reaction of the, the, the event that happens to you. So if this is true, if you can remove the sense of responsibility from the act of choice, then this difference should disappear. Right? So if you choose, but you don't feel responsible, then you shouldn't have this enhancement in negative emotion. So to a different group of, of participants, I show the same scenario, they make the same choice, or they assign the same choice, but the critical difference here is that to the choosers, they say like, look, you choose between continuing and interrupting the treatment, but the doctors think there is nothing else you can do but interrupting the treatment. So it's kind of framing the choice as a non-choice, taking away the responsibility, you're choosing, but there's nothing else that you can do, and in this case, the effect disappears. And now the choosers and the non-choosers, they all feel bad, but they feel equally bad. Okay? So, this is more realistic, right? To make it more realistic, I had to use multi-methods, because if I show you only this hypothetical scenario, you would say like, Phew! you know, these are undergrads, you know, what do they know? If I show you only the qualitative data, probably you'll tell me like, mm, I don't know, it's qualitative. Maybe you are interpreting the way you want to interpret. But if you put together the different methods, maybe you have a little bit more a sense that even with real you know, negative options, you may have this negative effect of, um, of choosing. Let me show you another example. It's in a slightly different domain. No, it's in a very different domain. Uh, and in a slightly different paradigm. Um, in which I also move from a less realistic to a more realistic uh, type of, uh, of experiment and also use multi-method to investigate um, a research question. This is in the uh, domain of charitable giving. Now, if you think that you want to donate money, you have to choose the recipient of the money that you want to donate, right? Or how would you choose this recipient? We ask this question in a pre-test, and as you may expect, 80, 90% of the respondents say, like, I would choose based on the level of need of the recipient. I would give my money to the one that I think need my money the most. Right? That seems rational. I mean, that's why you do charitable giving. You do charitable giving to help people who need it. So we had this study in which we say, like, well, I'm going to show you, like, four uh, girls. They had this, you know, this operation cleft palate, I think it's called, by Smile Train. So uh, Smile Train is, is an organization of charity that does this type of... Um, uh, of, of, of surgeries for free, but they still need money to thrive, okay? They, they come from a disadvantaged background. Which child would you sponsor, okay? Sponsor here meaning that you give this money and then you have this, some sort of like long distance adoption that, that you know what, are the, you know, what, the, what the, the kid does, you get pictures when they grow up. And these were the four girls, 
Okay, so we give them very limited information, the picture of the girls, and then some information about the age, where they come from, and they're pretty much all the same, all pretty much the same age, or pretty much coming from the same, same place, okay? Now we say, like, which child would you sponsor? Now, there is something in psychology called the beauty premium that says that if you are beautiful, or if people think you're beautiful, they also think that you are less in need. I mean, you're beautiful. What's, what's wrong with you? I mean, your life is great, right? I mean, you shouldn't, you shouldn't complain. Everything is great. And the opposite, right? If you're not that beautiful, you're more in need. So there is a negative correlation between perception of beauty and perception of neediness. In this case, the girls were pretested for Vera being less cute than the others. And therefore, and again, this was pretested, also perceived to be more in need than the others. Again, this is all perception, but this is the information that the people had, right? They had a perception that Vera was more in need than the others because she was less cute than the others. Therefore, which child would you sponsor? The majority of people should sponsor Vera, given that you want to sponsor who needs the money. In fact, that is what happened. The majority of the people picked Vera. Eh? Now, another group of people, you always see the experiments of different groups and you compare these groups, okay? Another group of people had the same question, but now critically, this Angelica didn't look like this. Look like this. Very cute, right? Pretested for being very cute. Therefore, also pretested for being not much in need. She's cute, doesn't need much. So in this case too, this group that should also donate more to Vera, right? They should also donate to the one that they think is the one more in need. In fact, they donated more to the cute Angelica. So they donate to the person that actually is perceived to be less needy, despite the fact that they say that this is what they want to do, they want to donate more to needy people, right? So if you see, the decrease here in donation to Vera is significant, the increase in donation to Angelica is significant. Now again, you can say like, ah, oh, this is all hypothetical. Right? They don't even donate real money. It's just like, you know, if you had to donate, you know, which one would you donate? So we try to see, to make it more realistic by making the context more realistic and also by using a different method, which is called more field experiment. So instead of being in the lab, we went outside in the wilderness, okay, in the wild world. Uh, Birmingham, <laughs> this is the University of Birmingham, this is the hall of the university. People were passing by, normal people, I mean, people in Birmingham, so staff, students, parents, everybody, and they were asked to donate real money to a conservation center for animals. And they were shown the different animals they could donate to. This is actually something that this conservation center actually does in the website, so we cannot replicate it in real life. These animals, some of them were pretty cute, like a giraffe, a zebra, but they were less in danger of extinction. And some of them were not very cute, the orangutan and the lemur here, poor, it doesn't look very cute at all, but those were more in danger of extinction. This is a conservation center, you want to donate to the animals that need the money, because they're you know, about to get, you know, to, to not exist any longer. And again, people did get it, that these were, more, these were cuter, People did gather that this needed the money less, they were less in danger of extinction, I guess, these different people we asked. But the one that we asked to make donation, that would donate more to the giraffe than to the lemur. Okay, so this beauty premium seems to be working also for animals, but again, once you have to donate the money, you tend to donate to the cutie one. Why? 
we have different um, hypotheses. I have this feeling that kind of choice makes us a little bit selfish. Uh, and in, in this case, if you think about choice, instead of increasing kind of societal well-being, kind of decrease the size of societal well-being because you allocate money where you shouldn't, you know, to the, 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 what you think actually doesn't really need the money. In fact, we did another study in which we tried to test this idea. In this case, again, the four girls that I told you before, um, this is when we tell people, you're going to pick a girl, and this girl, you're going to be the sponsor, right? You're going to adopt this girl. Again, everybody, or not everybody, but the majority picked Angelica. In a different group, we say, like, you pick the girl, but you're not going to sponsor the girl. The girl is going to be sponsored by somebody else. In this case, people pick more Vera. Right? So it seems that there is, I mean, again, there is not really association. What association do you have with a lemur and what, or whatever is called the animal? And what association? You don't really have an association. You get some pictures of this girl when you grow up. But still, I guess you want to be associated with a cute one. And so if you pick, uh, you pick the cute one, even though you shouldn't. All right. All right. So, so far, what did I show you? I showed like, uh, a few situations in which uh, freedom of choice doesn't seem to uh, improve individual societal well-being. Uh, and some reasons for it, uh, you know, selfishness or kind of same thing of responsibility for the outcome that you have to, to experience. And also, if you want, interventions that you can make pre-choice to try to reduce this cost of choice, this idea of the selfishness, or this idea of the responsibility. So if you want to make people, if you want to have people be happier with the outcome of the choice, so if you want people to be less selfish and want to increase their other well-being, then you should take this cost of choice in consideration and reduce it. You can take away responsibility, as in the medical case, or you can try to take away the selfishness, as in this case. Okay? So these are pre-choice interventions to try to reduce the cost of choice and increase the well-being that comes with choice. Recently, I've been obsessed with another thing. I said 720, right? Yeah. Recently, I've been obsessed with another thing, which is, can you intervene to try to increase the well-being coming from freedom of choice after people have made the choice? So this is a pre-choice intervention, if you want. Can you do intervention after the choice, post-choice inter intervention? So we have like a little stream of research that we call it the choice closure. Usually, to understand what is it is about, it works very well with romantic relationships, okay? So, I'm female, heterosexual, and so I refer to the boyfriend who broke my heart when I was 15. And I'm sure that everybody can uh, relate to the same situation. So that guy, right, is still there in my mind. He's still ruining my life, kind of, right? Still think about it. <laughs> Why did this do this to me? I don't know why. So, I mean, I moved on with my life. I'm happily together with somebody else, you know. And instead of focusing on all these things, good things happen to me, I still have this event, you know, negative event in my past that is not closed. I haven't closed. I haven't reached closure with that guy. And if I look at him, it's like he's not even that attractive any longer, you know, but still. <laughs> so, we know what we're talking about. In, I'm exaggerating. I'm not, but, you know. In choice, okay, how can you translate this in choice? You know, you make a choice. You have a bunch of options that you compare, right? You try to, to do your best, hopefully, unless you are drunk or whatever. You, you, you try to make 
you try to make the best choice, right? You try to make the option that you compare all these options, and like, okay, advantages and disadvantages, whatever, this seems to be better than everybody, yeah, choose this one, okay? Once you've done that, this decision-making process is over, it's done, it's finished, right? You have picked something, you should focus on what you picked and consume it and enjoy it, right? What do people do, in fact? Once they've picked something, not in all cases, but in a lot of cases, they try to say, like, mm, maybe I should have picked something else. Right? Maybe I should have gone back. We should have, instead of this guy, I should have picked the other guy there. Instead of this person, I should have picked that. Mm, let me rethink. So they, they kind of revisit the decision-making process, and they keep compare or comparing what they've picked, what they've already picked with what they've already rejected. Right? And this generates, as you may think, a lot of distress, a lot of emotional distress. So we thought about it. Can you make people deem that decision-making process as close, as finished, as over? It is. It is close and finished and over. But psychologically, can they get to that point in which you say, like, that guy, enough. Ruined my life for like 20 years, that's it. Right? Of course it's past. But now I tell myself that it's past. And can this allow me to enjoy what I have, you know, the guy that I have more. So again, we did it in the lab. And again, we cannot have romantic relationship in the lab and people breaking hearts in the lab, and so therefore, we go back to chocolates, right? Again, it's not that I care about chocolates, a little bit, but, but again, it's a way in which you want to, to, to understand this relationship between choice closure and satisfaction with an, an outcome of a choice and well-being with the choice that you have picked. So in this case, what happens? People come, everybody has to pick a chocolate, has to eat a chocolate. They uh, take this lid <laughs> off a tray with a lot of chocolates. This is a ch difficult choice because you're like, hmm, which chocolate should I pick, right? The 30 chocolates, should I pick the best one? Again, nobody dies out of this, but it's a relatively difficult choice. So they select the chocolate to eat, and they eat it. In the no-close condition, they eat it, having in front of them all the other 29 chocolates that they've rejected. In the closed condition, everything is the same, but after selecting and before eating, they put a lid on top of the rejected chocolate. Right? Now, the chocolates are still in front of them. You see the lid, lid is transparent. Nothing really changes. But what we thought happened is that by putting this lid, it's kind of you, you, something click in your mind, you say, like, this is over, I'm closing it. A lot of metaphors, right? Putting the lid on, turning up, we try to be turning the back, and you know, that should make this thing click, and then you focus on what you have, and you should enjoy it more. We also did it in a way that is a little bit more realistic with um, labels. So in the, in the open condition, the no-close condition, you pick this one, and everything else staring at you. And here, everything else is also staring at you, but with little labels, they say, reject it, reject it, and eh? you reject it. It's not that you're giving more information, they have rejected it. But now, we thought that this visual cue would make them understand that that is over. Right? You shouldn't kind of say, mm, maybe you should have done something else. So, uh, what we find, again, this is how much people, oh, sorry, it should be enjoyment here. No, there's not, <laughs> I should have changed it. How much people kind of like this, uh, this, the chocolate that they ate, like the yogurt, and in the closed condition, when they eat it after closing, they like it more than in the no-close condition where they eat it after not closing. And so we thought that this kind of this agony of thinking about should have done something else reduces your well-being with the choice that you've made. If you can take that agony away, you like it more. 
We did this with indulgent choices too. So this is hypothetical, but we also did it in the lab with real uh, choices. So you have to usual thing, you have to pick between the cake and the salad. The cake is gonna make you fat, but it's good. The salad's not very good, but it's not gonna make you fat. If you pick the cake, either we're telling you you've rejected or not. Right? So in this case, you pick the cake and you rejected this. You know you're closing on the virtuous choice that you could have made or you're not closing. And in this case, we thought that disclosure again takes away the agony, the guilt, the regret. I should have picked the salad. Now I'm getting fat, you know, all these kind of things. And again, the same effect. The enjoyment of the cake increases when you close on the salad than when you do not close. The last thing in terms of closure that actually I think is the one that I like the most uh, is with inferior or superior choices. I'm there. My, my watch, I'm the, I have the Italian watch, it's kind of, okay. So, <laughs> I still have one minute. <laughs> so here, think about, again, uh, relationship, right? So you say, say that you have a guy. Right, let me just get back. Say that you have a guy. This guy is not perfect, right? He's going to have, you know, some advantages, some disadvantages, some things is great, some things you don't really like him, okay? It's a normal person. And then imagine you're on Facebook, and on Facebook you can see all your previous boyfriends. <laughs> Not many, you know, few. <laughs> and they're all doing great, you know, they're all kind of looking good, not aging, you know, whatever, having great careers, a lot of vacation. Now, all of a sudden, this guy that you picked seems a little bit inferior, it's like, hmm, I could have been with this one, and look. <laughs> so, better not to be on Facebook, okay, close. <laughs> Don't think about what you could have done. However, you still have the same guy. Okay, and these past boyfriends, they all don't look very good. Huh? They didn't age very well, they don't have boring life, right? In this case, closure doesn't help you, right? Because actually, you should make an effort to say like, oh, I could have been with these guys, and phew, I'm with this one, great, I love him. So in this case, when the choice that you have made is superior, closing detracts from this glow of telling yourself, I made the right choice, it's the superior choice, I've made the right choice. And the problem is that in real life we do the opposite. We close on successes and we keep bad things open. Right? The guy who broke your heart, still there. The good guy that bears with you every day, he's like, yeah, whatever, he's there. Right? Or, you know, get tenure, like, well, pff, of course. Now you don't get tenure, like, shoot, should have, right? But uh, what happened here again with the chocolates, we tell people like, oh, you know, you pick not the very good chocolate. In this case, those who close, they like it more than those who do not close. They pick the chocolates, we tell them, oh, you, you made great choice. Then in this case, those who do not close like the chocolate more than those who close. All right? So, I'm done. A few conclusions about the method. Uh, i show you like a lot of experiments with uh, hypothetical, uh, real, less realistic, more realistic, uh, hypothetical kind of scenarios, uh, real scenarios, DV that they are hypothetical, how much you like something, or behavior, how much you eat something, or how much you donate something, versus how much you would like to donate something. The idea here is strive for simplicity. You may have big research questions, you have to make it simple. That's the whole point. You have to make a causal relationship between two, maybe three variables. Right, so you have to make it very simple. Um, I would always start with a low-cost test of the hypothesis. I 
made my life so complicated with this logistics of the yogurts and the Indian people that don't like the yogurt and you know the yogurt, everything was all anyway it was very complicated I should have started simpler I see whether there is this relationship and then complicate it complicate it for example by making more realistic type of experiments more realistic type of tasks considering multi-methods like I show you like field studies and lab studies uh, or, or, or you know lab studies and um, this kind of qualitative data so use different methods and very important build a research program again you will never be able to to answer big questions with one experiment but if you do a lot of experiments all trying to tackle the same question from different perspective then it all is going to make sense after 20 years I'm going to know everything about that I still do not know anything about freedom of choice but I pretend uh, from a theoretical perspective Choice freedom does not always improve satisfaction with the experience. Uh, Pre-choice interventions can reduce the cost of choice freedom and therefore improving this experience, improving this well-being. And in some cases, you can think about post-choice interventions like choice closure that can help consumers take stock of the past, take stock of what they've done, and then try to maximize the utility that you can uh, achieve, that you can extract from these choices. And this is all, and if you want to do experiments, this is the LSE lab. Thank you. Thank you very much for this very entertaining talk, isn't it? Um, lovely. So for, for me personally, because I've, um, I'm doing research in, in choice, I think the two main messages that come really clear um, are first off experiment, 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 wisely, appropriately. And the second one is really this last one that Simona talked to us about, which is close, appropriately, um, your choices, especially the bad ones, the nasty ones, right? So um, if, if you're okay, I'll just ask you some, some questions as around these two themes. But because you put up a slide, thank you very much, uh, to add the test lab, I'll start with that. <clears throat> How many of you have uh, run experiments? Raise your hands if so. How many of you have participated in experiments? Quite a few. Oh, wow. How many of you have never been in a lab or not run a study or, um, you know, ever been? Great. So I have questions for of all, of, all of these groups. So we're going to start actually with the people that just raised their hands have never been in the lab. And why is lab research still important, particularly at this time and age when we can collect data about people's lives in the field, online, without even bothering to go to the lab, really? Yeah. Why is it still... I think that there are certain things that you cannot do uh, not in the lab. Uh, again, there are a lot of things that you can do uh, outside of the lab. It can be cheaper, can be quicker, can be less uh, dramatic. Um, but there are other things that you cannot do, like behavioral um, DVs, for example. So having people eat things, do things, try things, experience things, is something that you, you have more control over your participants if they do it in the lab. So the lab offers a more controlled environment to make sure that they do whatever they're supposed to do. But again, not necessarily you need to have behavioral, you know, de behavioral dependent variables or, or people actually do things. So in that case, I would actually say, well, you know, maybe running online, it's, uh, it, it, it's, it's cheaper and it's faster. So for a first test of the hypothesis, maybe quick and dirty, 
uh, it's good. But I think it's always, uh, it's always interesting to see whether your theory or effect replicates, you know, with, with people doing stuff in the lab where you can control for everything else. And again, the lab allows you to control for so much so that you have, um, you're, you're more sure about this causal relationship that you're looking for. So the control, I think, of, uh, of behavioral uh, aspects, it's, uh, to me, is the, is, the, is the main pro of the lab. And also you said, if you want to measure behavior, yeah. really, the only way you can really see that people behave yeah. that way is if, if you're in you the lab. You can like, find tricks, for example, like you know, MTurk, which is this platform now to do study online. You can say, like, well, do things and send a picture that you actually did this thing, right? Because they're doing it in their own house, so you have no control about what they do, and so they're supposed to send a picture. But you can see that, the, you know, the, if they want to trick you, <laughs> there's a lot of ways in which they can do it. In the lab, you actually see them doing things, and so there is much less space for, uh, yeah, for, for this. I mean, as you showed in your um, second uh, experiment, well, study, mm-hmm. the, the, the trick is really to get multi-methods, so yes. that you don't completely... Yes. E- test your theory yes. or hypothesis yeah. exclusively in the lab, but cons, in several. Right? So you have to mix it up. And especially if you want to figure out an intervention that helps people like feel less responsible, um, you can think about an intervention like a, like a pill, like a pharmaceutical drug. You test it first in the lab, and then you test it out. Okay, great. So for instead, those of us who run experiments, um, and I'm one of them, um, I was really fascinated by the unusual stuff that you bring to the lab. You know, the tarragon spice, uh, the um, leads that go on top of the chocolate. So I want to know, what is the most unusual prop that you used in your experiment, the weirdest? <laughs> so definitely. Um, and why? St- and why? So in one study... You know, another study about this undesirable, because it's kind of difficult to find undesirable options that, again, don't kill people, <laughs> but they're still undesirable, right? It's, so once I did it with bad smells, and uh, so there were like these smells, and my idea was like, you smell, you take three deep breaths of this disgusting smell, and then you choose it or you do not choose it. And, and so I went to the chemistry department, and I said, like, can I, how can I concoct a bad smell? And the chemistry guy said, like, you can, but they're going to faint. I said, like, no, I can't do this. I cannot faint in the lab. So eventually, another PhD student said, kids. And at that time, there was something called, um, there were little toys. They were called the, um, the master blaster, no, the stink, stink blasters. And they were toys that would smell bad. And so they had, you had like, you know, there were 15 different characters with 15 different bad smells. And they would come in these capsules, and the, the kids, being kids, I guess, I don't have kids, but they don't seem to be very nice, they would all go to the parents, and they open this, this little capsule, like, yeah, you know, smell it. And so I bought a bunch of these ones, actually only one, the Master Blaster, the, the stinkiest one. And then I would cover it in gauze and put it into these things and say that this was a, a, a research about cheeses and like a bad smell of cheeses. And so they didn't know that there were these little dolls inside the, the capsules because otherwise it would be fun and they were not supposed to be fun. So they were all covered in this gauze. So they would open the capsule and take these three deep smells and then whatever. So I manipulated something else. But you can imagine, I smell like you know, a, a garbage can for you know, months. And everything else, like my house, the lab, you know, my, my cubicle, my, my, my cubicle mates, you know, everybody smelled like the stink blaster, so they hated me. Uh, 
and, and I was I was there telling myself like why am I doing this to myself? <laughs> why did like you know I'm never this is never gonna work out. This is all a waste of time. I should go back to Italy. <laughs> I should forget about all this. <laughs> Thank you. So it's really fun to be part of an experiment. Yeah, you know, exactly. Did the participants know about the? They didn't know. Obviously. Only in one case, though, one guy kind of opened the capsule a little bit too strongly, and this little little toy popped out. <laughs> and and so the the research assistant came to me. He's like, oh, the little guy popped out. I'm like, what you want? What happened? Anyway, but okay, I took so, out some data. That, that is funny. So you can you can ask a more. Um, more strange questions, but now away from lab and experiment, let's get to the real topic mm. of the talk. Mm. Um, how crazy our brain is in reacting and experiencing choices that are actually given by others. So I'm interested in this thing, the fact that you study how the brain reacts to choices that actually are given even by well-meaning others, like doctors. Charities, they are not there to, you know, to creep you out or to make you unhappy. So let's call these people choice architects mm -hmm. because they are really there to offer you choice. And they, um, you mentioned it a bit at the end that much of the research in decision making now is trying to figure out what are the ways to help present information, present choices such that people find it easier to choose. Yeah. It's choice architecture, it's nudge, it's all developed from Chicago where you studied. But you add to that this idea that we can not focus on the pre-choice path, but the post-choice path. So for the choice architects, what's the tip that you take I from mean, your I research? What can they do? So I think the, the main point that, you know, like anything, choice comes with costs and benefits. But people tend to overestimate the benefits and underestimate the costs. That's the whole thing. So if you ask people, do you want to choose, they would say yes. And if they ask them why, is it because I'm going to be happier. They do not really forecast that there are certain situations in which this choice is going to make them worse off. So I think from a choice architect, what you have to do, you have to try to decrease as much as possible the cost of choice. And these costs are cognitive, it's difficult to choose, Emotional, which are the ones I'm more interested in, the regret, the guilt, the, um, you know, the responsibility, and the, the guilt and regret comes with responsibility, and also opportunity costs. If you keep choosing, you don't do something else. When I was choosing the, the gas supplier there, three days, I didn't have fun, kind of like I was choosing. So if you can reduce all the costs, I guess you can increase the benefit of the choice. And so anything that can help reduce, especially cognitive costs, the way you present the options, the way you present the decisions in which you make the choices, if you give the faults or not. These are all ways in which you can make the choice easier, therefore reduce also the emotional costs and the opportunity costs and probably increase the benefits. So a lot of the, 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 the choice architecture is before, is the pre-choice, because you want to create the conditions to make the choice as easy as possible, mm -hmm. right? Um, the post-choice, I think, is more difficult, and I think also there are like ethical issues that we can, we can talk about it, because you may ask, why would you want to artificially inflate the satisfaction that you get out of a choice if the choice is bad? Right. Right? We can talk about this. Uh, so I would not go into that, that domain, but there's a lot that has been done. You know, the way the choices are framed, the way the doctors frame the choices, and they know it. The way they talk about the different options can, you know, influence the decision one way or another and can, um, you know, can make the choice easier. 
but there are always kind of consequences to that, right? Yeah, let's see, and we can have a discussion afterwards. Now, my last uh, question, and then I'd like to open the floor to, to questions. Um, you haven't talked about it tonight, but I know that you've been looking into the role of AI, algorithms, and uh, consumer research. So do you think that AI and algorithms can give us hope? They can relieve us of sense of responsibility and make us happier? Uh, to me, it's fascinating because, again, you know, it's something that I didn't talk about. Whenever I ask people, do you want to make a choice, they say yes. Do you want to delegate the choice? They say no. The only case, actually, in which they, they said that they didn't want to make the choice was a tragic choice, the, you know, the, the, the babies. Uh, they say, like, when I ask, like, do you want to make this choice, they would say no. But then when I ask them, do you want the doctor to make the choice, they also say no. <laughs> and, and so, I mean, people really are attached to this thing of, of choosing is a very is a basic need that we have to feel in control of our life, to feel that we are adult, to feel that we know how to make choices. It's very difficult to say like no, you know, I'm not going to do that. And with this AI, we are all happily giving these choices away like all the time. And I think that the way in which people frame this to themselves is that they decide to give away the choice. They decide to buy Alexa. They ask Alexa. So you can kid yourself into saying like, well, I'm still in control of my life. If I don't want to ask Alexa, don't. In fact, you do. But again, you tell yourself, you justify the fact that finally you're relieved of this, the cost of choosing by delegating to this thing there, and you make up you know, stories for yourself. Maybe delegating to a machine is better than delegating to a, a human being. Um, there is some research, actually, it seems in medical decision-making, actually, is not the case. The people prefer delegating to doctors than to delegating to an AE algorithm. So I think it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a domain that is um, interesting. But the thing that interests me the most is this one, that people seem to be very happy to delegate this choice to AI. And uh, when in reality, when you ask them, they also seem very attached to the act of choice. And I think, I guess... It's easier to frame it as I'm in control because that's a machine. I buy the machine. And therefore, they give themselves a justification to relax and uh, have somebody else making jobs for them. Have you already done an experiment on this? No. Let's do it. I'm against AI. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we can lure you here. So now it's time to open um, up the floor for questions. So the way we normally do this is that we have a roving mic and uh, so if you can indicate, uh, Romain Mike will come to you. So please always start with your name and affiliation. And then don't forget to ask your questions. Sometimes you're like academics, really boring academics. We give little mini lectures. Don't forget your question. Um, uh, Simone, I think, is happy to take three questions at one time so she can decide not which to, which to answer, but how to blend them together. Is that okay? So we'll go on till seven. Yeah, we have done. Go for it. Hi, yes. my name's Anna, um, and part of my work is that I'm a life coach, and I have some clients who have, well, they perceive that they've made loads of terrible choices about their life in the past, and it appears to paralyze them about making future choices. And I just wondered if you thought it might actually be freeing in some way for them to think or do something practical like you did, like all the choices that they'd made, maybe they could write them down and just put a sticker on them that said accepted and other things they could put a sticker on them and say rejected. Do you think that might, or something like that might have any merit? 
Thank you. No, Shall I go? Yeah. yeah. Go Hi. Um, thank you for the talk. It was very nice. Uh, I'm Olga Kostopoulou. Um, What's your name, sorry? Olga Kostopoulou. Oh, yeah. okay. So um, I work at Imperial College. I study medical decision making, but yeah. from the physician's point of view. Um, so my question, I had two questions. One is, have you ever looked at individual differences mm -hmm. in not only um, in how people get satisfied or, or, or experience regret after they make a choice? Uh, and my other question was, have you ever tried to insert probabilities mm -hmm. in your experiments? Thank you. So here's a tough one. There's three questions about two people. So um, <laughs> how do we go, John, with this? There was another question. <laughs> There's another question also there. Yeah. Same question. Same question. So we can start with this round, and you start thinking about the next one. Yeah. So should I answer these two? Yeah, go right. Three, no, right? One, two, three. Questions. Two people. Oh, two people. Three questions. Okay. <laughs> so, um, all right. So that's actually the, the your question about um, does choice closure works when you know what you're doing when it is deliberate, right? That's your question because in all these experiments, we we would tell people like, can you please put the lid back on the. On the, on, the, on the chocolate, or can you close the menu, or you know, just look at these pages, but they did not know what they were doing, kind of, right? So we thought that it was a cue, like a psychological cue, that would make them somehow, you know, this thing happen in their mind. Now, could you expect the same results if, in fact, you know what you're doing, right? You know, you I remember, you know, I see friends all the time. There's an episode, I don't know if you see friends, there's an episode in which I think um, it was St. Valentine. By the way, St. Valentine comes from my hometown, Terni, in Italy. So that's where St. Valentine is, just to give a little bit of publicity. Uh, but it was St. Valentine, and they decided to burn the pictures of all the previous boyfriends, like the, the three girls there, right? And so, you know, can, can doing something like this, you burn the pictures, you burn the, no, the clothes, they burn the clothes and then the whole, of, of course, the whole apartment got on fire and then the firemen arrived and they're very attractive firemen, that's the whole, uh, that's the whole thing. Um, or can you delete all the, you know, Facebook account or knowing that you're doing it because you want to move on, right? I don't know about that because that's a very different domain in which you deliberately do something uh, what I know, though, is that in the study with the inferior-superior choices, the one that in, if inferior choice, uh, closure helps you, if it is superior closure actually doesn't help you in, in increase, we ask people, imagine that you pick, you know, this chocolate and, you know, this chocolate is inferior, this chocolate is superior. And now you can create a website that is either looks like the closure one or that looks like the non-closure one. Which one of these two websites do you think is going to make you like the chocolate more? And people pick the wrong one. People, when they're told that they pick the, 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 the inferior chocolate, they pick the open website design. And when it's the superior chocolate, they pick the close. And our explanation, again, is that because we have this thing, right? We have these things, again, that we keep bad things open and we close on good things. And I think it's a developmental reason because we want to keep bad things open because we learn from our mistakes. And we want to close good things because it's a waste of energy, a waste of cognitive resources. You should just keep doing it rather than asking yourself. And, um, and I think that we uh, use the same kind of way of thinking 
also when it comes to choices, even when you do not have to learn much from those choices. Um, so again, our instinct tells us to do the thing that is the opposite of what's gonna make us happy. Uh, but again, it's not a way to answer your question, uh, but it's kind of, a, if you ask deliberately if they understand the value of closure, they don't. If you make them close, I don't know. I don't have an answer to that question. Maybe you can try. <laughs> now, the other question is, um, by the way, I tried with that guy and it's not working. <laughs> <laughs> Even burning. Again, I'm just kidding. I'm really over. But. I'll do it unconsciously. <laughs> I'll do it without you knowing. Maybe that's going to work. So um, the other one is about the individual differences. I'm not big in individual differences. I'm, I like more kind of creating context rather than looking at individual differences. So believing that regardless of who you are, if you're in a certain context, you're going to behave in a certain way. But this is a limit of my research because I should, in fact, use more individual differences also as way to you know control for some you know variants uh, i think the results would be much stronger if you take away the one of individual difference i think matters a lot in this case is this maximizers versus satisfiers mm -hmm. um, I, I really do believe a lot in that so the maximizers are the one who always want to make the best choice and the satisfiers are those who you know sometimes they say like yeah good enough let's move on and you can see that the satisfiers have a better life, right? And the maximizer, especially nowadays, in which, again, you have a lot of choices to make, you have a lot of options to choose from. How can you tell yourself that this is the best possible? It's impossible, right? But if you aim to make the best possible choice, that makes your life very complicated. Yes, or locus of control, internal versus external. Um, this need is, I don't closure. think, it's an individual yeah. need, for, need closure, for closure, yeah, cognitive. Uh, the other thing I think is that if people are fatalistic, which is related to the locus of control, or they are highly religious, uh, they can, you know, the, their choices are less difficult because you say, like, well, I don't choose, somebody else is going to choose for me, and he, she, whatever you want, knows what's going on because it's God, because it's fate, because it's... Um, so I think it's very important to look into individual difference. I haven't done it, not because I don't think it's important, just because kind of, I was wired in a different way, like the way you studied, um, kind of, uh, you know, it's an imprinting on you, and so when, when I studied, it was all about context rather than uh, individual differences. But now have you randomly assigned the condition across? Yes. Probably, we know that even without taking into consideration individual yes. differences of effect, yes. is there? It might is be there. just exact. It's there, but if you, could, if you could suck up the, the variance with considering also these individual choices, it would probably make the effect stronger. Uh, and the other one with probabilities, so right now we're doing some work on, right now I'm fascinated by genetic testing, and which is a, it's not really choice, but it's this idea of having information. Mm -hmm. I mean, choice is a form of control, information is a form of control. So that's how I see them related. And people seem to take in this genetic test like this, you know, and then they get information about like whether they're gonna develop Alzheimer, whether they're gonna develop Parkinson, and, and you know, how, why people would want to do such a thing. Um, which again, is fascinates me because people either do not, either they're optimistic or they do not consider that this thing can happen to them or they're not equipped or they think they're equipped to take on this, this, this uh, information or not. But anyway, so there we are trying to move, to, to work a little bit with probabilities, right? So whether the test is deterministic, for sure you're gonna get Alzheimer versus is probabilistic and if the probability is like below or above 50%, and how people will react in terms of whether they want to take the test 
uh, and you know how they react to the, to the news of the test and this kind of thing. So I guess that there's a lot that can be done there. My probabilities. Thank you. Great. So we're ready for another round. Actually, a couple more. So let's go really with purpose. Uh, let's go from the back, the three, and then here for the next one. Thank you. Hello, and um, thank you for your talk. I'm Eleanor. I'm um, looking at decision making at UCL, um, and I was just wondering whether you looked at the interactions between choice paralysis and what you're doing, because instinctive, instinctively, I would have potentially thought that the more like freedom of choice are you, the more choice you have, choice paralysis would predict that you're less satisfied. So yeah, I just wondered how, if there's a point at which you switch to preferring someone else to make the choice for you. Um, hello, Hi. thank you for your, your talk. Uh, Niels Kari Kotlarek from uh, Imperial College in Mathematics. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> that one coming up. Yeah, that's uh, the usual yeah, answer. Yeah, 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 smart one. <laughs> um, I was wondering if you ever consider cultural differences, uh, especially I'm thinking about politics, China, America, and Europe, things like this. Another one, right? Yeah, another one at the back. Yeah, another one. Do we have another one? There were some here, right? Yes. Claire, you're up next. <laughs> hey, um, thanks a lot for this for this talk. I'm Oz. Um, I work for YouTube, and my job is to do creative experimentation on YouTube. Uh, trying to understand what kind of ads people like, but they actually hate ads, which is <laughs> so great. Um, skip, so skip, skip, skip. <laughs> my question is around the number of options we have in every choice. And I'm curious to hear if you made any studies around this or if you have any thoughts. Because in theory, the more choices we have, the more options we have in every choice, we should be happier. But I've read some studies that suggest otherwise. So just curious to hear your thoughts. Next, okay. All right, great. So I think the last question and the first question, if I understand it correctly, I cannot see me. So this, this, this idea of the choice paralysis, in fact, comes come from this uh, stream of research that's called choice overload. Barbara's done a lot of research on that too. Uh, I've done some uh, studies in choice overload. I think the underlying idea is the same, that if you think about the more options you have, the more freedom of choice you have. The less options, the fewer options, the, few, the, the less choice freedom, which is, you know, it's kind of, kind of like I'm looking at the extreme, having choice versus not having choice, while this other research is like how much choice you have, right? And you may think that, you know, you, you could say like, you know, choice, you know, choice freedom is like similar to having a lot of options and not choice freedom is similar to having very few options. But I think there is something beyond that. Uh, I think it's not just extreme. I think something happens when you have no freedom of choice. Doesn't really happen when you have fewer choices. Uh, but these choice architecture issues, they are much more powerful when it comes to the number of options because I think the way you present the options is very important. And you can present options in a way to make, again, this, this paralysis going away because, for example, and there's a lot of research on that. For example, again, you start with defaults, right? So you say, like, well, and so if people don't really care much about the specific attributes, maybe they, they, they take the default. And for the attributes that they really care, they want to see the whole, the whole range of options. Or uh, you can you know, present some um, kind of the, the, the options 
you know, you, you pair the options in a way that is easier to judge which one you like better because they have the same attributes. Well, if they have very different attributes, it's difficult to see which one you like better. So there are a lot of ways, and I think that's where, what you can do in trying to ease the, the, the cognitive difficulty of comparing the options uh, in the, in the, that you are presenting. And I think that that is also the one way in which you can eliminate this paralysis that you can have from, from having too much to choose. I, I mean, I have it all the time. Like, I, for example, I don't buy online because who can buy online? You know, whenever I try and you have like 300 pair of shoes, it, it's just like, I don't, I'm not going to buy anything. I need to mm -hmm. go to the little boutique where they, they charge me like three times the, the price, but you know, I, I see five of them and then maybe I can make a choice and I can convince myself it's the best pair of shoes. Um, but otherwise you have this thing that you get in and you're like, okay, nothing. You know, sales, those are the worst, the worst time of the year because I want to buy everything and I, I, in the end I don't buy anything. Oh, sorry, there was another one. The cultural difference is very important, very important. Um, I have not done much uh, when it comes again to cultural difference, similar to the, the, the individual differences, not because they're not important, they're very important. So even just when I said about, for example, the Indians liking certain things more than, 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 than the non-Indians, something that I didn't cross my mind, uh, but that, that was the case. So whatever you can consider undesirable in one culture is actually desirable uh, in another culture. So again, because you mix up the different culture, you randomly assign people to the different uh, conditions, this is kind of a source of error that should be mitigated. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you want to look specifically at, at the cultures, then you, you, know, you differentiate, you have groups of different cultures, and you see whether they respond or not to the same freedom of choice. There is some work done by a psychologist at Stanford, Hazel Marcus, uh, and they do use culture, and they see that there are, you know, as you would expect, that more collectivistic uh, culture, they give less, um, less value to the choice and the freedom of choice. And the more individualistic culture, they give more value. So taking away the choice to the Americans is really difficult, and they really you know, don't want to, and they really react badly. But taking it away in more collectivistic culture, they don't react as badly. And a very interesting one, even more, uh, they did studies on socioeconomic uh, differences. And so it seems that people with high socioeconomic status, they're more attached to choice, and they're more attached to the freedom of choice, and they give more value to choice than people with lower socioeconomic status. Which is like not culture by, you know, but you can think about different cultures uh, defined by different socioeconomic status. And, so, and in, a, in a way, in your study of American versus French yeah. parents, that's a confounding. It's, I mean, yeah. you, you can't disentangle it. Yeah. But that in, fact, difference. in fact, the sociologist that did the study, she was interested in cultural differences, right? For me, that was a confound of my study because I was interested in having choice versus no choice across cultures. But then you could have interpreted those results like, well, maybe the French are more accepting of life than Americans in general. That's why you get those results. The choice or no choice has nothing to do with that. That's why I had to do the experiment in which I control for cultural differences and I try to see whether I can find the same effect. Great. So I have Bad news and good news. The bad news is that it's six minutes to eight, and we're supposed to end at eight. But the great news is that we're going to continue on afterwards at the reception because the department is offering drinks and nibbles outside. So That's what let's, they're saying. Yeah, they're exactly. Well, no, also because you want to know about Simona's work and the lab. So let's, let's have the last two questions real quick. Um, 
So I promised to Claire that really um, I, sh I should have that. Claire, and um, can we have, it's really hard, purple, purple sweater. And then promise me that you'll ask a question to Simone outside. Let's see how we're doing on time. Maybe you really can do this fast. We can have another round. Yes. Um, um, so I'm Claire. I actually work with Barbara in the Department of Management. Just started. Well, yeah, just started. Just started. <laughs> um, so in the past, I've been interested particularly in sort of health and medical choices. And I, I think that's really interesting and often has a different perspective on some of these things. What do you think about using closure in, in relation to those choices? So there are often choices where there's no way back. So do you think closure would be useful or not useful in this case? In medical decision making, that's yes. a question. Okay, yeah. thank you. Um, I just wanted to ask about the yoghurt experiment. Sorry, I'm Helen, a member of the public. Um, how difficult was it to say to choose for equally desirable choices? Like, what if everybody chose cinnamon? Or, you know. So, you think that is easier to choose from milk? Okay. Let's start with Thank that. you. Oh, that's it? Yeah, oh, let's okay, start with okay. that. Cool. Okay, so in medical decision making closure, I mean, I'm tempted to say works also in medical decision making, uh, but I don't know. This is the idea that you, know, you study a relationship in a context, right? Does this happen in other contexts? Does it, what's called external validity? Does it happen in real life? Does it happen? That's the limit of the, of the research in the lab because you know, it gives you only you know, that, that, a test of that hypothesis in that specific context. So if you want to see if it happens in other contexts, you have to redo it in other contexts, right? Uh, but if the theory is right, it should work, right? If you have done a decision in a medical field that is bad, for example, then not thinking about that decision should help you coping. If it is good, then you should not close. You should ask yourself, look, I could have done you know, worse and now uh, I did this, and so you extract more utility. But if that really happens, I don't know, I, don't, I haven't done that study. Um, uh, for the other one, uh, it could be a compound, like you're saying, right? It could be that in one case is easier and the other case is, is more difficult. And so you would have to you know, take that into consideration. So it is very important, in fact, for this, for this reason, that people are not familiar with the options that they have in front of them. So the cinnamon, that they, they, they were all good options or bad options, but they didn't exist in reality. It was not like strawberry yogurt or, because in that case, you may think you do know your preferences. And then even the, the problem with like too many choices, you know, goes away. If you know your preferences very well, if you're very familiar with a specific situation, then there are not that many costs of choosing. Uh, if I know that I like a specific brand of shoes, even if I have 600, I just go like, where is that brand? And I pick that one, right? So it's important to make the choice, try to make the choice equally difficult by taking away the familiarity of the options. Plus you can test it, you can measure it, how difficult was it to choose. Plus the other thing that I did, which I think it makes the, 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 you know, the, the study even more interesting, is that in some cases, in some of the studies that I've done, there was a best choice. So for example, for the little guys, the little smelly guys there, there was a description of the, of the smell that was like, you know, uh, high in rotten eggs and you know, low in uh, terroir. And in, so in some cases, you could see which one was the most disgusting one because you know that rotten egg is disgusting and that was high in rotten egg. 
Well, you don't know what terroir means, so you do not know if it is disgusting or not. Even those who pick the right choice among all undesirable options, they felt worse than those who did not pick. So even if the choice is easy, in the sense you know what is the best choice to make, the fact that you made it, this responsibility increases the negative effect. So you have different ways in which you can cope with that, but this is, you know, this is the classic question you have to ask yourself when you ask experiment. Is there like something else that can explain my results? That's called a confound. And so do you have to solve that in the design of the study or in the measures that you have? Well, with that, I think uh, we can thank Simona. Um, thank you, guys. We... Thank you for coming. <laughs> this is like a...